Hey, if you got your Bibles, uh, why don't you grab them and go to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Uh, 1 Samuel 10, uh, in your pew Bibles, it's on page 449. You'll find uh, uh, where we're at this morning as we continue in our series called Choices, Decisions That Shape the Soul. Um, and uh, we're, we're just continuing to, to move through these, really, these are just just iconic stories from the Old Testament uh, found in the, in the books of, of Samuel. Uh, last Monday, I was doing some shopping at Costco, uh, which is always a risky thing to do. Uh, you, can, you can walk out of there spending more money than you anticipated. And uh, Trina and I were kind of, we were kind of uh, tag teaming on some things. And I was in the, in the frozen food section, and there was a, a young mom pushing uh, her cart. It had two uh, young boys in her cart. It looked like they were about four years old, six years old. And they were moving through the frozen food section. And, um, and, uh, and they were moving past this one door, and the, the youngest boy, the four-year-old, uh, began to uh, talk pretty loudly to mom. Um, he, he said very loud, I mean, you could hear him several aisles away, he was saying, you're passing the, the nuggets, the chicken nuggets. Uh, and and I, I caught everyone's, I look over, and here's his mom, and she's continuing to push her cart, and, and the kid begins to raise his voice even higher, and said, mom, you're passing the chicken nuggets. And, um, and I was like, wow, this is, this is going to be interesting. I'm just going to kind of move my way over there and watch what goes on over here. And uh, mom continues to move. And by the way, a young mom who takes her kids to any grocery store to do some shopping is a courageous mother. Uh, this, this, is a, this is a bold act. This is a bold initiative on the part of a mom. And uh, some of you have been there. And uh, she continues to push her cart. This, this child is now becoming very angry. Uh, he's, he's climbing out of the cart, and he's starting to yell at mom. Mom, you're passing the chicken nuggets. You're passing the chicken nuggets. And the six-year-old is starting to jump in as well. And um, this is a scene happening in an aisle at Costco, and this poor mom is trying to rally troops, and he's got this four-year-old and a six-year-old who are irate because chicken nuggets are being passed, and they are angry. Uh, and my, my guess is that passing chicken nuggets in Costco or in a grocery store is probably not going to set you off, but there are things in your life that will set you off, that uniquely set you off. And let me just pose the question, what makes you angry? I mean, what makes the, the temperature rise in, in, your, in your heart, in your, in your body. What makes you angry? I, I, I did a little research, uh, finding out about the top 10 things that make people angry. Uh, I got it on the internet, so I know it's absolutely correct. Uh, but here's some examples of things who make, that make people angry. Uh, people who cut in line uh, make people angry. Dogs that bark incessantly. Um, some of these, you, you'll, you'll go, oh yeah, that's, that's my one. Uh, being put on hold when you call somebody, um, or being around people who act like the rules don't apply to them. Uh, ever experienced that? Uh, how about when the, traffic light, light, when the traffic light turns green and the driver in front doesn't move because they're texting? Uh, that, that one makes people angry. This one, I would say, is probably the one I, I, I relate closest to. People who drive slow but speed up when you try and pass them. Is that, I mean, that's just, I don't know, it happens more, uh, more times than not. Uh, people who talk during movies, uh, people who are texting or looking at their phone when you're talking to them, uh, people who text you 
and then you decide not to text them back, but you're going to call them back, and then they don't answer the phone. Uh, companies that when you call them make you listen to a zillion options before you get to talk to a real person, and by the time you get to a real person, you can't understand them. Uh, it's, these things sometimes get us to behave irrationally. Anger begins to rise. And when I was growing up, I, I, I was taught, and I just had this, this basic understanding that anger was a bad thing. You should avoid anger. You should avoid becoming angry. And, and you, you certainly get that from the scriptures. Psalm uh, 37, verse 8, uh, says these words. It says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Don't get so worked up. It tends only to evil. Or in the New Testament, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, uh, says, get rid of all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander along with all malice. Anger, bad, uh, don't have anything to do with it. Uh, yet then you get to the New Testament and you begin reading the Gospels and you, you read about Jesus getting kind of worked up and, and not just once, uh, several times where Jesus gets, gets kind of angry. Uh, you know, you get Mark chapter three, Jesus is in the synagogue and the Pharisees are there and, and he, he's about to heal a man with a withered hand and he asks the Pharisees a question and, and their response angers him and it literally means he was indignant uh, he was enraged with them and, and he ends up healing the man or mark chapter 10 jesus is is in a in a village square and the disciples there's kids coming to to be with jesus and the disciples are keeping the kids away and mark uses a word in the original language that describes the highest level of anger to describe jesus response to children being kept from him he was, he was enraged. He, it was like smoke coming out of his ears. He was blowing fuses. He was so upset that kids were being kept from him. And the, probably the most classic one, the most known one, is in John chapter 2 and some of the other gospels as well, when Jesus goes into the temple and turns the tables over in the, in, in the temple. Which, which, when you look at the life of Jesus and you look at uh, the, the, the scriptures that talk about getting rid of anger, avoid becoming angry, uh, when do I know when I should just, you know, when, when should I just overlook, when, when should I not become angry, and when should I be angry? Because obviously Jesus had, had moments when he would, he, his emotions would run high. How do I know when I, I'm, I'm angry in ways that lead to sin, and how do I know when I, sh I, really, should, I really should be angry about something? Uh, and, and what I want to do is attempt to answer that question by looking at this story found in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and into 1 Samuel uh, chapter 11. Um, where we're at in the, in the story here is, uh, you know, Hannah is no longer barren. Eli is no longer the priest of Israel. And Samuel is no longer a, a young boy. And the word of the Lord in Israel is no longer rare. And if you were here last week, you heard Susan talk about that this, this, uh, the Israelites asking for a king and how Samuel told him what a dangerous decision that was uh, to want a king. And, uh, and Samuel talked about what, it, what does it mean to have a serious friendship with God? And she walked us through some really important steps in, in our own evaluating and growing in our, in our friendship with God. And talking about having resolve and, re, and remembering and, and rethinking. If you didn't get a chance to listen to her talk, I'd encourage you to catch it on our, on our podcast. 
But, but Saul, this request for a king has been granted uh, by, by the Lord, and, um, and, and Saul has been privately anointed as king, and there's been a, a bit of a public ceremony. There's going to be a larger public ceremony by the, by the end of chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, and, and Saul is just beginning to start out, and these are his good days. He does have some good moments, um, and I want to do is I just want to, as we answer this question, when should I be overlooking situations that might make me angry? When should I just ah, let it go? And when should I really rise up and be concerned? And when should emotions really be stirred in us? I want to answer that question by looking at this story, end of chapter 10 uh, and into chapter 11 of Saul in his, in his early days as king of Israel. I, I want to read the end of chapter 10 beginning in verse 24. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 24. Then Samuel said to all the people, this is the man the Lord has chosen as your king. No one in all Israel is like him. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people what the rights and duties of a king were. He wrote them down on a scroll and placed it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent the people home again. When Saul returned to his home at Gibeah, a group of men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But there were some scoundrels who complained, how can this man save us? And they scorned him and refused to bring him gifts, but Saul ignored them. Just stop right there for a moment, because this is, this is the beginning of, of Saul's kingship. The monarchy in Israel is just beginning, and, uh, and Saul is starting out, and as you, you, you see this, Saul has been selected, and he's been appointed, and the crowds are shouting, long live the king, and, and as Saul is going back to Gibeah, there's groups of, of Israelites that are going with him to Gibeah, these valiant men, uh, sort of like, it's, it's sort of like Saul's secret service is beginning to emerge Yet at the same time, there are people who are questioning Saul's ability. Who does this guy think he is? How is this guy going to save us? How is this man going to lead us? Sort of the questions behind the questions. It's this, this uh, statement of, I, I don't believe in this leader. And so what they do is others are bringing gifts of honor to their new king. Others are shouting, long live the king. You have a group of men who are saying, nah, I'm not going to honor this king. I'm not going to bring a gift. I'm not going to lend my voice of support to this new king. And if you know anything about world history, what happens when a new king comes into power and there are a group of people who refuse to support that king? Well, you look through world history, what you, dis- what you discover is the new king then gives an edict, which is like off with their heads. You, you, you eliminate all opposition when you're starting out in your new monarchy that you see that over and over again in, in world history. Yet in this situation, what Saul does is he ignores them. Some versions will say, but Saul was silent. He overlooks this really potentially very offensive act on the part of some men who are, are called scoundrels, who won't bring gifts, who won't honor. So he just overlooks them. Which, when it comes to those, those opportunities we have to be offended, and can we just say that on a daily basis, we have multiple opportunities to be offended? Don't we? I mean, it's, it's, it's little things like the person who cuts in line. It's, it's that something that was said to you. That just really sets you off. Uh, and um, 
I have this, this story from me. It's from years ago here at Salem Alliance. Uh, I preached the weekend, and uh, and uh, you know we have encouragement cards that, that people use to encourage one another. Um, some some folks think they're suggestion cards. Some people even think they're discouragement cards. They're encouragement cards, which means you deposit courage into people. I had some encouragement cards in my office, and I I, hope, I, I looked at the first one, and uh, it, it actually when I read it, I just started laughing because it said. When I come to church and I see that you're preaching, I usually read my book. But this weekend, you were actually good. <laughs> and I just, I, I literally laughed out loud like, wow, okay. It, it's that crossroads where you can go, I'm so angry. Um, and, and what happens is, is we take ourselves too seriously, we can become really offended. And, and Saul is at one of those crossroads. He's the new king. Man, he could, he could take himself so seriously, he can just give and eat it off of their heads. I'm gonna pay him back. I'm gonna, and you face this on a daily basis. You face it in the workplace where someone takes a shot at you or takes credit for your work. You face this in your neighborhood when, when someone gives you the cold shoulder. You perhaps even may even face this in your own family and some of the relationships that are most important to you. These, these opportunities to be offended happen day in, day out. The writer of Proverbs, the wisdom writer, he, Solomon, in, in Proverbs chapter 12, uh, says this, a fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. A fool pops right away at an opportunity to be offended, but a prudent man, a prudent woman, this is someone who's wise and considers the future implications. That's prudence. A prudent man or woman overlooks an assault, an assault, an assault, an insult, which can feel like an assault. Uh, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Think about that for a moment. When you come to that crossroads where you have an opportunity to be offended, it's an opportunity to be annoyed and to have all the emotion rise and to appear the fool, it's also an opportunity for glory to overlook an offense. Let me just define overlooking an offense and just to give some more clarity to what I'm saying. To overlook an offense is the ability to shrug off disappointments, disagreements, and insults with an absence of brooding hypersensitivity. It is the capacity to stifle a hot, emotional counterattack and to sleep on an insult. And that's what Saul's doing. Saul is sleeping on an insult. And as we get to the end of the story, you're gonna see this reaction to, uh, to these scoundrels where there wants to, there's payback and there's vengeance. And this, again, when you overlook an insult, you sleep on it, and then you let go of this, this tendency to, to, to give paybacks. Because we just don't take ourselves too seriously. And we, we, we just, there's things that just we should just let go. So when it comes to, should I be angry? Well, one, of the, one of the things is, is many, I'd say, you know, 80% of the, of the scriptures in, in the Bible that speak on, on anger, view anger as negative. About 20% of humans is positive, but, but when, the, when the negative ones come at us, many of those we can just let go and overlook an offense. It's an opportunity to not be the fool, be the wise woman, the wise man, um, and, and just sleep on an insult. 
But as we continue in the story, we're going to see Saul get pretty worked up. He sleeps on an insult here at the end of chapter 10, but in chapter 11, he really gets fired up. Now, uh, the end of chapter 10, you'll, you'll find in, in your Bibles, perhaps, that the, the final verses there are in brackets, uh, because this, was, this is a part of the, the text that's not in the earliest manuscripts. This part of the text actually was, was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, in, in the books of Samuel Scrolls uh, that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This, you get this background on what's going to happen in chapter 11. So let me, let me read it, because it says, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had been grievously oppressing the people of Gad and Reuben, who lived east of the Jordan River. So if, if you're thinking today modern geography, you got Israel, and then you, you cross over the Jordan River, now you're in Jordan, that's where, that's where the, this is happening. So he, Nahash gadged out the right eye of each of the Israelites living there, and he didn't allow anyone to come and rescue them. In fact, all of the Israelites east of the Jordan, there wasn't a single one whose right eye Nahash had not gouged out. But there were 7,000 men who had escaped from the Ammonites, and they had settled in Jabesh-Gilead, which would have been northern Israel at the time. So about a month later, chapter 11, verse 1, about a month later, King Nahash of Ammon led his army against the Israelite town of Jabesh-Gilead. But all the citizens of Jabesh asked for peace. Make a treaty with us, and we will be your servants, they pleaded. All right, Nahash said, but only on one condition. I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you as a disgrace to all Israel. Give us seven days to send messengers throughout Israel, replied the elders of Jabesh. If no one comes to save us, we will agree to your terms. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the people about their plight, everyone broke into tears. Saul had been plowing a field with his oxen, and when he entered to town, he asked, what's the matter? Why is everyone crying? So they told him about the message from Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul. I don't know what the picture is that comes in your mind when the Spirit of God comes powerfully. But here's a picture that probably doesn't come to, to our minds. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul and he became very angry. He took two oxen and cut them into pieces and sent the messengers to carry them throughout Israel with this message. This is what will happen to the oxen of anyone who refuses to follow Saul and Samuel into battle. And the Lord made the people afraid of Saul's anger, and all of them came out together as one. When Saul mobilized them at Bezek, he found that, these were, that there were 300,000 men from Israel and 30,000 men from Judah. So Saul sent the messengers back to Jabesh-Gilead to say, we will, rescue you, we will rescue you by noontime tomorrow. There was great joy throughout the town when that message arrived. The men of Jabesh then told their enemies, tomorrow we will come out to you and you can do to us whatever you wish. But before dawn the next morning, Saul arrived, having divided his army into three detachments. He launched a surprise attack against the Ammonites and slaughtered them the whole morning. The remnant of their army was so badly scattered that no two of them were left together. Then the people exclaimed to Samuel, now, where are those men who said, why should Saul rule over us? Bring them here and we will kill them. Remember these guys, these scoundrels? Where are they? Bring them here and we will kill them. But Saul replied, no one will be executed today 
For today, the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us all go to Gilgal to renew the kingdom. So they all went to Gilgal, and in a solemn ceremony before the Lord, they made Saul king. Then they offered peace offerings to the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites were filled with joy. It's this strange story of this enemy called, named Nahash, uh, who, who, who has this sort of ISIS-like barbaric behavior of gouging out the right eye of people he conquers. Now, why would, why would Nahash do that? Well, a couple reasons. One is to, to, to humiliate and disgrace the conquered peoples. So in this case, he's humiliating uh, Israel. Uh, another reason is because when you take out uh, uh, an eye, if you lose an eye, you lose your depth perception. Um, try this. Actually, don't try this, but cover your, cover your eye when you're driving. Pretend. Okay, don't do this. Or even when you're walking, cover one of your eyes and you'll see how much it impacts your depth perception. But probably more, more importantly is when it, when it came, to, uh, when it came to, to battles, you're losing your depth perception and you're doing hand-to-hand combat. In those days, what you, it, was, it was hand-to-hand, so you had a shield in your left hand, uh, perhaps a sword in your right hand, and the way you fought is you, you sort of worked behind your shield. Uh, a historian named Theodoret, he, he captures what, what, what happens when you lose your right eye in that kind of hand-to-hand combat. Here's what he says. He says, he who opposes his shield to the enemy with his left hand thereby hides his left eye and looks at his enemy with his right eye. He therefore who plucks out that right eye makes men useless in war. Here is what Nash is doing. He's exposing the people of Jabesh Gilead to the enemies. He's, he's making them vulnerable. Now, interestingly, interestingly enough, Nahash, his name literally means snake. And can we just say that the enemy of our souls, the enemy of our church, loves to expose people, loves, loves to bring people to harm's way. And this is just being lived out through a guy named Nahash to the people of Israel. Now, Saul... And this is a whole other story. He's farming. He's been an anointed king. He's farming. Uh, but he's coming back, and he hears the news that this is going on. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he is enraged. The, the, the result of his Spirit coming, he is just furious. And he does, this is not right. And so what Saul does is he cuts up his oxen into pieces and he sends them throughout Israel and says, this is what's going to happen to your oxen. And some versions actually say, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't rally to protect the family. Now, I would say this is probably not what you would say is the most modern, up-to-date leadership styles of how to build a team. But sometimes, can we just say, sometimes the people of God are so asleep that the Spirit of God needs to come on a leader who will go to the people and say, wake up. It's time to wake up. There is an atrocity taking place, and our family is endangered, and we need to rally and move to Jabesh Gilead because they are being attacked. See, the human tendency is, well, it's not really impacting me. That's so far over there, and and. And what Saul, by the move by the Spirit of God, he is angered. And I read the story, and you know what happens. They defeat Nahash. And interestingly enough, at the end of the story, it's like, where are those guys who said Saul doesn't have what it takes? 
Where are those, those scoundrels who wouldn't bring gifts? Let's, let's kill them. And Saul goes right back to the very beginning and said, no one is going to be executed today. He slept on that insult. He overlooked that offense. That's history. And his response is, today's a day of celebration. Today is a day that we are going to celebrate that not Saul, but the Lord has saved Israel. It's a, it's a, oh, Saul, if you only had stayed in this place. Humility. Overlooking offense and yet righteously angry at the right moment, prompted by the Spirit of God. Now, I, I want to I put a quote here by G.K. Chesterton up on the screen. Chesterton, this, this might be a little bit provocative, but Chesterton says, a Puritan is a person who pours righteous indignation into the wrong things. What Chesterton is saying, we don't know when to be angry and when to be silent. And what happens is we tend to get angry about the wrong things and we tend to be silent in those moments when someone needs to stand up and say, this is not right. So what is righteous anger? How do we know? Let me just give you some, 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 some guardrails, some, some, some identifiers of what righteous anger is. First off is this, righteous anger is a response to actual sin. It's not a response to perceived sin. It's, it's not a response to someone uh, uh, you know, violating my traditions. It's a response to, to actual sin. The second thing is this righteous anger primarily focuses on how people offend God and his name, not me and my name. The tendency is we get angry because it's about me. It's about my name. You've crossed boundaries with me. And righteous anger primarily focuses on how people are offending God and his name. This is David standing in the valley of Elah. We'll look at the story in the weeks to come. Who's standing up to Goliath and saying, who is this? Who is this man who defies the name of our living God? Third way to know what righteous anger is, is righteous anger is not an excuse to sin by embracing attitudes and behaviors that are unlike Jesus. Oftentimes, there is a moment to rise up and say, this is not right, but in our response to this is not right, we cannot excuse ourselves of doing things that are frankly unlike Jesus. You, you see this in, I'd say the classic forms of this, you know, is like, for example, Westboro Baptist who is, is trying to get the message out about how an offense of homosexuality is, so they're holding signs and saying that God's, God hates homosexuals. They say it in a much more crass fashion, but it's, it's this, it's this misrepresentation of who God is. That, that, that would just be a, just a, a, a very obvious example. One is probably more, more down to earth is when someone offends us and we have that anger rising up within us, instead of going to the person and dealing with it with them, we end up going to other people. Perhaps something did happen and you should be angered. This, this, should, this is a situation that should be confronted but in, re, in responding to it, the answer is not then, well, because this, you're, I, this, I'm right, I can behave wrong. You track with me? So righteous anger is, is not an excuse to behave unlike Jesus. 
A, a, a good example of, of righteous anger uh, would be in our own history as a, as a movement, a denomination. I don't know if you know this story, but our founder, A.B. Simpson, was, uh, was, was a pastor in a, in, a, in a large church in New York City. He had a passion for sharing the gospel. He would go down to the docks as the immigrants were coming in from all around the world. And he had led, uh, one week he led 100 Italian immigrants to Christ. He brought them to his church in New York City. His church was very excited that Italian immigrants had come to Christ, but they were not excited that they were in their church. So they told Simpson, these people can't worship here. And Simpson became righteously angered to the point where then he resigned from his pastoral position there at that church and began a new work in downtown New York City, a work that would allow him to go and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with immigrants who were coming from all around the world to the U.S., or, or in our own history as a nation, uh, the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr., who, who's, this is not right, but responding in ways that were not sinful, but exposing the reality of the offense against God. This is righteous anger. And so we, we need to understand of how are we handling our, is this an opportunity to overlook an offense, or should, is this a moment where we say, we need, to, we, we need this is not right, we need to wake up. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 26. Be angry. It's an interesting beginning to a verse, isn't it? Some versions say, when you are angry, which means there will come times when you'll be angry. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. What is Paul saying to the Ephesian church? There's a time to be angry, and in your righteous anger, don't sin. Deal with it decisively. Don't let, it, don't let this linger. Before the sun goes down, deal with this anger, and give no opportunity to the devil, which means that when we don't appropriately deal with the things that anger us, there is actually, if you feel like, perhaps, man, I'm just under spiritual attack. Man, I just feel like, I just feel like there's, there's a sense of spiritual warfare in our house or in our home or, uh, you know, against me. Could it be, and I'm not saying it, it, it is, but could it be that there's some anger issues that you, issues you have not appropriately dealt with? What Paul is saying is when we don't appropriately handle our hot emotions, it actually can give a foothold to the evil one. It may be a situation in which you just need to let it go and forgive. Or it may be a situation where you need to stand up and cut up some oxen. I'm not suggesting that. But just to, just to say, hey, this is not right. But do it in such a way, do it in such a way that models who Jesus Christ is. Let's just wrap up and just prompt, just prompt some conversation with these questions. These would be great questions that you could have around the dinner table, you could have in your small group. I know there's actually a family in the Middle East who listens to our podcast and, and they talk about these, these, these questions. Uh, here, here's one, am I angry? Friend, are you angry today? If so, why? Is, is, this, is this one that you should overlook an offense? Is it an opportunity for glory? Or is it, is this really something that, that, hey, we need to wake up on this one? Another question is this, am I being silent when I shouldn't be? Am, am I just silent when my family is, 
the family is being attacked, the, 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 the family is in danger. Am, am I being silent when I, I need to raise my voice? Third question, am I making a lot of noise when what I really need to do is let it go? Am I all worked up about something? When in reality, this one just, this, is, this one just needs to be let go. When do I know, how do I know, if this opportunity where my emotions are rising needs to be just let go, when do I know when I should stand up? Friends, what it is is when it's about my purposes and my name, it's likely something I just need to let go. But when it comes about God's purposes being thwarted, when it comes about God's name, the name of Christ being demeaned, then I think it's, 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 it's time to, to say, we need to wake up. We, this is not right. Now I want to invite you to stand and we're going to wrap up our time together. I just want to say as, as, as we go today that there will be people up front who would love to pray with you about anything that's going on in your life. Uh, maybe it's on this topic. Maybe that you, you've, you feel like you've, you've been offended and you want to let it go or uh, maybe you need wisdom about how to respond to something you feel is, is, is not right or any, any other thing that's happening in your life. Please take advantage of that. And uh, here, here's my blessing for us today. My, my blessing for you is that the God of peace would fill you with his peace and that, that your hearts and minds, whatever your circumstances are, the peace of God would transcend anything that you're facing. Whatever worry you have, whatever anxiety is in your, in your heart, whatever hurt is there, that the peace of God would transcend all of that and guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you. Have a wonderful day.